0: The voice of the Cameroonian woman must and will be heard in all corners of the globe. The time has come when we must make our contribution so that when history is written, the Cameroonian woman will have an honorable place in its pages. Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Madina Thiam. The excerpt I just read was part of a speech delivered in 1965 by Anna Foncha, the wife of Cameroonian statesman John Buffoncha. It is quoted in the introduction of the new book, Gender, Separatist Politics, and Embodied Nationalism in Cameroon, which came out in 2019 with the University of Michigan Press. I am very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by the author of this book, Dr. Jacqueline bettel Chutamogue, an assistant professor of African Cultural Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Mugwe, thank you very much for joining me on the show today. I'm really happy to have you on.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: So, can you begin by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about your personal background and also about your training?
1: Yes, um, I was born in Cameroon, a West Central African country, but moved to the United States in the early 1990s um, when I was a child. And since childhood, um, one of the things that I really wanted to become when I uh, grew up was to be a painter. So essentially, to be sort of this uh, free-roaming artist. Um, but as perhaps you might know, or, or, or perhaps have had this experience, um, as a child of immigrants, particularly African immigrants, um, this was this idea about being a free-roaming artist did not sit well with uh, with my father, who um, would always say you know I struggled to come to the u s and so on, and you know my, my child 's not going to grow up to just draw right so he, one of the things that he wanted me to become was a, was a doctor, not a lawyer, but a doctor, so naturally, I rebelled and chose um, to do history and so but um, unfortunately, through uh, my undergraduate years, um, I told him I was pre med and, and I told him um, only after I had graduated for history degree that I was actually a history major, um, and I told him in front of colleagues and friends at my graduation party, so that way I would uh, survive the encounter. Um, and so, and, and it was an interesting experience when I finally got my PhD, um, and we were celebrating—you um, know, my 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 first um, position. It, it was at this point that he said, "Oh, I guess uh, people can make money." teaching history. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was this sort of um, my sort of journey um, to uh, finally um, coming into the field of um, history. But uh, one of the things that I focus on uh, in my own work is on African gender history or on African women's history. And the journey to that specific focus um, was a little bit different. And so um, I received my PhD in history from Purdue University, as well as a graduate certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies from Purdue University. And essentially, taking classes um, in, 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 in that program led me down the road to start to focus on how individuals in Africa construct their self identity through ideas about gender norms. Um, and so, in general, my research focus is, is, is looking at how individuals in Africa develop or construct ideas about self-identity through political actions, religious beliefs, or bodily practices such as through clothing, and I use a specific uh, gender lens, or I use a gender lens in order to examine those actions or those historical narratives. and. The main issue that I address or, or, or want to resolve in my work is to understand the role of gender and how individuals have developed this sense of identity in in the past. But most importantly, how this can help us understand modern day events, right? So not just leaving the past in the past, but making this a clear connection between um, what happened in the past and and and, and what's going on today. And, and and looking at this sort of uh, making of these um, different ideas of, of how people understand themselves, I have found it very useful to look at these narratives through a gender lens. And I really started that journey when I was taking these classes um, at Purdue, these classes on gender history, on African feminist history, and, and, and really, uh, my eyes really opened up when I took a graduate course on African feminism. I, I just fell instantly in love with the topic. And, and as a Cameron-born woman, I, I started to understand how feminism is, is of great importance to African women, but how African women themselves have understood feminism um in a really different way. And and so I have understood feminism in ways that we may not recognize within Western discourses or, or within, um, or in the U in the U S. And I started to use that frame of analysis, um, not only, um, in my dissertation, but just how I look at, um, my academic work in general. Um, how, what does African gender history look like? What does African feminist history look like? And these are some of the themes that I tease out um, in my recently published book.
0: Mm-hmm. And so specifically for that project, what was the genesis? You, you set up for us, I guess, um, your progression to graduate school and mm-hmm. asking these important questions of what is African feminism? Um, how does it shape people's social relations? How does gender shape our social relations? So for this specific project, how did it come to be?
1: Yeah. Um, so it, once again, it, it, it was a really interesting and fascinating journey, and it wasn't one which I uh, saw. Uh, so when I, first, when I first decided to go to graduate school uh, for history, I actually wanted to focus on the U.S. Civil War, Um, not an African history. Um, I I don't know why. I think I just didn't been watching a lot of documentaries on it. And so that's actually what I decided to do. And I applied to graduate school late um, because I was still deciding what I really wanted to do. And when I got to graduate school within a semester, I switched to focusing on Sudan. Um, I had taken um, a graduate-level course in which we were asked to write a research paper, and I wrote my paper on gender and violence in Sudan. And so I started doing research on Sudanese women's history. And at some point when I was doing research on the women of Sudan, I thought, I have no idea about the history of women in Cameroon. Um, and, it, and it just made me feel. At some point, I became uncomfortable, and I thought, okay, um, here I am writing the history of women in another country, and I, I and I have no idea about the history of my aunts, you know, my um, grandmothers, and so I started on that journey, and I and I and I, and I decided I'm going to focus on Cameroonian women's history. But the problem was that the. <laughs> the way I understood Cameroonian history was very biased. It was very slanted. Um, I, I did not understand it uh, at that point that what I knew was the little Cameroonian history, I did know it was Cameroonian Francophone history. So the history that you know my father had told me or the history that my family mem- members had told me. And so I, I thought when I first started out on this dissertation topic that I was just going to be focusing on Cameroonian women's history and it was going to be by default Cameroonian Francophone women's history. And I started to sort of get an inkling of um, of um, the the problems in this perspective when um, i send out a question on hnet so you know back in the days the hnet listserv was the place to be and so and and that's where i i was and so i send out this question to my Cameroonian listserv um, and there started to be this this question about which Cameroonian woman are you speaking about uh, are you speaking about English speaking women, French speaking women? Are you speaking about women in the North? And, and, and I thought, okay, um, Oh, I seem to have made a really fatal um, uh, research mis- mistake. And I was thinking of that when I went to Cameroon to do um, research about these sort of um, inkling about the two different histories of the Cameroon. Uh, and so I started out by going to the archives in Yaoundé, so the Francophone capital of the country. And I was just, you know, just searching through all these various materials about gender and women. And what I mostly found was, Historical narratives about francophone cameroon and so i didn 't really follow up on this sort of you know intuition or, or this sort of inkling that other people were trying to sort of sh- uh, share with me about these these very diverse histories of Cameroon until I was invited to vacation in the english speaking parts of Cameroon, um, which I had never stepped from the English speaking parts of Cameroon until I was conducting dissertation field research and I went there and I stayed with close family friends and um, And uh, the woman who's like an aunt to me um, said, you know, there are archives here in Boya. So a large speaking, a large English speaking town in Cameroon. And she said, there are archives up in the mountains. Why don't you go and check out these national archives? And I said, but I've already been at the national archives. What do you mean? And kept insisting and she finally dragged me there. And I realized, okay, first Cameroon has more than one national archives. And second, it just completely opened up my eyes, the things I found there. I I just, I really honestly couldn't believe the things that I was finding. Um, All of this information about um, the history of the region of Cameroon that was formerly under British rule, um, all of this newspapers and then embedded in these newspapers were all these vibrant conversations about gender roles, um, women's history, um, Cameroonian uh, Cameroonian political history. The archives had all these images and all these photos I had never seen. I mean, it it just, for me, for someone who was so new to this topic, it was shocking because I had been told before I left to go to Cameroon by my dissertation advisors that, listen, here you are planning to conduct field research, but know that you may not find what you want to find. Know that you may have to switch your topic. Essentially, they were preparing me to be um, to be flexible to change my topic or to change my approach. And what I found was not, um, you know, originally what I thought was going to be a good, you know, treasure trove for. Francophone Cameroonian history, what I found was just this amazing amount of resources uh, on Anglophone Cameroonian. I had so many resources or had access to many, so many primary sources that I honestly didn't even know where to even begin. So I had the problem, the opposite problem of what my um, dissertation advisors had told me that I had the problem of as I had too many resources. I had the francophone, uh, I had resources from the, uh, from the region, from the um, research of former French ruled Cameroon, and also from the formerly British ruled areas. And it was, it was a lot. Um, and so what I started to do was essentially to just look through as many Resources as I could, and I didn't always necessarily read my resources or, or, or my, at the archives. I was just too busy taking a lot of a lot of notes and It wasn't until I left Cameroon and really sat down to look at my notes that i I, I was really surprised, shocked, and delighted at the resources that I found.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. You took a lot of turns before before reaching that project, which in a way, as a graduate student, is kind of reassuring to hear that it wasn't all figured out from the beginning.
1: Yes, and one of the best advice um, I got was um, from uh, a a fellow um, colleague who who who. Parents who are from Africa, she told me that um, when conducting field research, that I need to be open to the networks and connections that my family members try to facilitate for me. And she Uh said, "Don't be annoyed; just go through with the process." And so um, it was really my family that said, "Go to Boya, go to the English-speaking parts, go and you know take a a break, and perhaps there'll be things there." And I thought, "Mm, "No," Um, and and I and I and I remembered um, this advice. And and so I, once I followed through on it and and they started sort of facilitating networks and connections, I thought, okay, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes when you leave to go conduct field research, you think you're going to do one thing and you end up doing something else, but, but also it's a very different experience when you're someone that's was born in that country or has family members in that country. The, the turns that you take are, can also be very different, um, from someone who's not from there or was not born there or has family there
0: uh-huh. can you can you set up for us the political and administrative situation during colonization and at the time of independence of the territory that is now the republic of cameroon i think mm-hmm. it will really help us understand all these distinctions that you just talked about uh, between anglophone and francophone and that how that shaped your research so what is this history what happened there
1: So the French take the larger eastern part of Cameroon and the British take the smaller western part. And the smaller western part is where my um, research lands. It's the geographic focus of of my book. Um, And and, and this part of Cameroon, so the western part, is split into, into two. Um, Overall, it's known as the British Cameroons, the northern part is known as the northern Cameroons, the southern part is known as the southern Cameroons, and the southern part specifically is the focus of my book because the northern parts of Cameroon eventually joins uh, Nigeria, Um, and the southern part eventually joins the recently independent uh, French-ruled region of of the country, and they do that in 1961. But to be clear, the independence movements for each part, uh, for each region, is slightly different. Um, There's been lots of research showing that the French-ruled area engaged in a violent and brutal struggle for independence from French rule. Um, And there's been a lot of other research showing that formal independence in the British-ruled areas happened in a very different way. And as I mentioned... um, The southern parts joins the newly independent French-ruled area and the northern part's newly independent Nigeria, which is a story for another time. It's a very fascinating story. But uh, when the southern part joins the former French Cameroon, they form the Federal Republic of Cameroon. And that happens in October 1961. And this is where the timeline in my book really begins. So it covers that time period between 1961 and 1972 when Cameroon was officially a federal republic. Um, And it's really fascinating because, um, yes, you have now Cameroon, which is essentially kind of unified, but now you have two federal states. Um, So the unified country comprises of the English-speaking West Cameroon state and the French-speaking East Cameroon state. And each state had its, has its own. Uh, essentially has its own government, laws, systems of measurement, official language, social and financial system. They even drive on opposite sides of the of the road. And this is where um, you start to see political tension. So between 1961 and 1972, um, during this time period, you have an overarching president of the republic. Um so the francophone president and he's known as Amadou Ahijo and he's a Muslim from northern cameroon he he leads the entire francophone republic he's he's the president, but he also leads the francophone eastern federal state. the vice president is john Fancha um so he's a vice president of the entire federal republic but simultaneously, but simultaneously he's also the vice president of the anglophone western federal state. So throughout the 1960s, what you start to see is a larger and more powerful francophone state or the French-speaking state starts to start a more aggressive stance towards the anglophone state or the English-speaking state. And this starts to cause fear and anxiety among anglophone elites of formerly educated urbanized that anglophone or English-speaking cultural values, national identity, and self-determination was really at stake. Um, and really, Anglophone elites rightly feared the hegemonic plans of, of, of the Francophone state, um, because between 1961 and 1972, what you see is a Francophone president of the Republic increasingly sidelines um, Anglophone political elites. Um, he also bans the multi-party system in 1966, which bans all parties in the country, so not just the Anglophone ones. And so, it becomes sort of this it becomes a um, a one-party state. And essentially his formation of the Unitary Republic, the United Republic of Cameroon in 1972, effectively brings English-speaking regions under his rule. Um, And so my work analyzes how do the Anglophone political elites between 1961 and 1972, how do they uh, develop this idea of their national identity? And and, and and what roles do women play in, in that? And, and and I argue that women play a very powerful role in that. And we actually see the effects and the influence of that today in Cameroon. What many people think of as Anglophone Cameroon identity today, these were um, what you would say recipes that were cooked up in women's um, kitchens in 1960s, Anglophone speaking regions of Cameroon, they were stitched together um, in ideas about what Anglophone, what the Anglophone national costume is. Um, these were ideas that were uh, developed, that were developed and made by women political elites in English-speaking parts of Cameroon. They 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 really worked hard to 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 basically answer this broad question of who are we as a people, um, and so they're putting together this sort of colorful puzzle of what Anglophone cultural national identity is between 1961 and 1972. Um, and, and, And I really, really honestly believe that their idea, their development of Anglophone national identity and cultural identity is what survives today, or elements of it is what survives to today, even more than the male-dominated political parties. And that gets me in trouble at conferences. Um, <laughs> there's men in the audience, and they were like, are, are you trying to tell us that um, women's political actions are more powerful, You know, so powerful that it still resonates today? And I say, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that doesn't always play off really well.
0: So women's political action... There's an important series of events that that predate the main developments that you discuss in the book um, mm-hmm. that happened in the late colonial period. And that is the Anlu Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And you touched on it. So can you explain to us what was this rebellion and why was it important?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I include the, the story, of the Anlu Rebellion in the book, because um, one of the reviewers said, you know, you really need to talk about women's traditional Organizations. You 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 can't talk about these formal political organizations without acknowledging that they're also drawing from local traditions about women's political power. And so I, when I went back and took a look at my sources, um, you know, of course the reviewer was absolutely right. And so I I, I point to the Army Rebellion um, because it it shows us the important political roles that women have played in Cameroon and in Africa in general. Um, but also it's a very juicy story, right. you know? <laughs> so which is why I was very much attracted to it. And so I point to this event in my book essentially to say, hey, look, Cameroonian women have always been politically active as individuals and as a collective um, group. Mm-hmm. And they have always been creative in, in, in how they access this, these long standing political powers, um, and also have always been creative in how they create uh, new access to various ideas of political powers. So, if we look at the Anna Rebellion, really briefly, what we have are, are several um, uh, key characters in this story, right? So, the women themselves. Um, the British administrative officials, but also, most importantly, the local um, African men who were part of two political parties. So the Cameroon National Congress, known as the KNC, and the Cameroon National Democratic Party, the KNDP. And so the KNC KNC and the KNDP were battling for political power of of British-ruled regions of Cameroon. So we have sort of these three uh, you know groups of characters that are key to this to the story, and so between nineteen fifty eight and nineteen sixty one which were the final years of British rule um, in western Cameroon, women in the grass field regions um, fought against essentially two forms of hmm, i would say po- political oppression, the so one against British rule and the second against uh, local African men uh, who had uh, political power. And their strategies for um, sort of in this time period was really fascinating. So let's begin with why the women were upset. So what we see is during this time period, the women cast aside their regular domestic and agricultural duties, essentially to engage in a revolt against the British administrative um, interference in Agriculture, which was normally their domain, so a space where they got social and political power, and to revolt also against the alleged plan. So there were rumors and gossip that the ruling political party at that time, the KNC, was going to sand was going to sell land to uh, to Nigerians. So the women were upset about you know being forced to change how they farmed, and then there are all these rumors about their lands being given away. And it's what they start to do is to essentially is to employ a centuries-old women's organization that was usually deployed or used against people who violated the moral code in that region, and that was known as the Anlu. Um, and so the women got together. And so I just want to be clear, Anlu is not a, 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 essentially, it's not a permanent women's organization. It's essentially um, employed in during times of crisis, you know, um, whether it's moral crisis, social crisis, um, now political crisis, um, they get together and they use all sorts of fascinating strat- like strategies during this time period. And there's been a lot of research that, um, Concludes that the women start to support the KNDP party and to fight against the KNC party because the KNDP party they feel um, is going to allow them to keep their land. Um, And so they so so they throw their political support that way. And so they use all sorts of strategy to combat um, KNC supporters, but also local. Um, uh, male elites, and so their strategies is you know I found this to be very juicy. It included stripping naked in front of men. Um, you have local men who consider the sight of of the vagina in public to be a very bad sign, and they understood the seriousness of the revolt. But you know, the surprised British officials um, at the start of 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 this um, of this uprising were. Surprised, um, They weren't sure about the political um, uh, intentions or the seriousness of thousands of women getting naked. And the women also started to interfere with the burial rituals of male political elites. Um, they heard insults at men. They demanded the closing of schools where they thought that the teachers were KNC supporters. They demanded the closing of, of schools. And i oh, sorry, of um, course in markets, they set up roadblocks, they destroyed and burned properties. Um, they went as far as whenever a man walked by, they would actually pinch his butt. I mean, essentially it was where gender norms were turned upside down, but there was space for that. Um, that's what happened when Anlu was employed. There was this general understanding in space that women had that uh, power to express serious uh, political or social or moral grievances. Um, and so essentially by disturbing local and political power and by protesting against British rule in the Southern Cameroons, the women um, are able into, into many ways to express their political independence and autonomy, but to also usher this important victory for the KNDP in 1961. Um, It's the KNDP at the, at at the, at the dawn of independence that has political power. And it's, and it's these women that sort of usher or they facilitate this process. But to be clear, the women are also um, exercising their own political power themselves. Many of the women that were part of this, um, movement. Sorry, not not many. Uh, sorry, the leaders that were part of this movement, um, one of them goes on to become a powerful judge. The women de- de- demand that the former capital and the in the western Grassfield regions is actually changed. It's it's relo it's 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 relocated to a different place. I mean, so there was very um, what I'm trying to say is that it wasn't just about supporting male-dominated pro- political party, and and at the end, it wasn't just about the KNDP coming to power. Women themselves were able to exercise their political voice and to actually um, get political power themselves. Pr- pr- particularly the leaders.
0: So something you make clear in the book is that although the Anno Rebellion is a very important prehistory of um, women's politics and nationalist politics um, after independence, uh, the context and the strategies also that women use became, became different. Um, yeah. And to describe all of this, you, you, you come up with a concept of embodied nationalism. Mm. So what was embodied nationalism And how did it manifest in in Cameroon in the early era of independence?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's really important to actually begin first um, with the journey or the process for that um, understanding of of, of what embodying nationalism was. Um, For me, when I was looking at the primary sources, there was so much about women's emotions and how they should behave. When I say behave, I I mean like smiling, how they should smell, what type of perfume they should wear. and, and, And all of these sort of, everyday bodily actions were being connected to ideas about cultural values, but also to the nation. Um, And and, and a lot of the sources that I found would have these really juicy titles, right, which would draw me to them. So one of them would say something about like, you know, um, women who are shy in public are in, they embarrass Cameroonian culture, right? You know, you shouldn't be shy in public, you should be able to have, You know, you should be able to intellectually um, uh, carry a conversation. You should smile, but you shouldn't smile too much that way. Uh, men and women think that you're sexually loose, right? And so there were all these conversations about just, you know, these everyday bodily actions and, and what that meant for the nation, what that meant for cultural values. Um, and, and I and I saw these conversations happening, and I was reading about them as a graduate student, but I didn't really know what to do with them, right? I, I just knew that there were all these stories about being shy, you know, sm- smiling and not smiling too much, um, you know, being able to drink but not drinking too much of that way you were drunken, you know, in, um, public. And it wasn't until I, you know, um, received the reviews for my book. And, 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 and one of the reviewers said, you know, um, the first half of the book, great, interesting, connects to the argument, second and half of the book with the woman, with housewives running around chasing their husbands, mistresses and the slacks. And like, like, there needs to be sort of a bridge, right? A way to connect women's everyday behaviors and bodily actions to the nation building campaigns. And this is when I actually went back to my notes that I took as a graduate student when when I was actually a pre-doctoral fellow at Northwestern University. Uh, We we had to give um, uh, presentations on our chapters from our dissertation and the people that happened to be in the audience um, a, a lot of the time in, in the program about African studies were anthropologists and political scientists. They were the ones giving me feedback. And so they, they really would say, you know, they, they, they would try to push me to look at these everyday and bodily actions um, within a particular framework. And I and I went back to those notes, and I went back to some of the presentations I had given, and I thought, aha, here I am talking about um, national embodiment and clothing. So I actually went back to the notes I had taken in two thousand twelve um, and t- played around with that idea of of, of how c- how can I better connect the second half of the book to the to the first half. And this idea about embodying nas- nationalism started to sort of crystallize, um, or, or, or my understanding of it anyway started to crystallize. And, and so, stories about um, you know English-speaking Cameroon's early post-colonial history, uh, both scholarship and those you know with, with a wider audience, tend to focus on the actions of men who have had power, um, and even during the period of focus in, in the book, uh, men who served as you know, prime ministers, vice presidents, and high-ranking uh, civil servants were openly um, uh, part of politics. And, and there's been all this work about um, how they created um, nationalism in English-speaking parts of Cameroon, but they often leave out women's roles. And so I, I felt that one thing I wanted to focus on was to re- reframe understanding of Cameroon's history during, during this time period by looking at how women, so the wives of men who had power, women states, bureaucrats, journalists, and political activists did access social and political powers in ways previously not known or talked about. So, so essentially female political elites. So that left to me with several questions. What, but what type of spaces do these women carve out for themselves? And how do they enter these um, spaces? And in, in, in order to answer these questions, or essentially to order, in order to answer the reviewers' questions, my, I started to see that, you know, formally educated women access social and political power by invoking this sort of idea about how uh, women's emotional expression and visual representation through, for instance, food, dress, and suitable conduct did absolutely matter in how they understood what national identity was. Um, and so they were invoking these ideas about embodied nationalism, so, which is was this concept that I or this uh, this concept that I understood as a type of nationalism in which you have identities that can be embodied through performance, emotional expression, affection, and visual representation. But I do do wanna be clear that you have several scholars who have rest in the phrase or notion of embodied nationalism. What I what I do in in my in in the book is I expand understandings of this term and I provide a more you know concrete definition that simultaneously emphasizes emotional expression, affectional bonds, and visual uh representation. And 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 I and 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 I, you know, from when I was um uh when i was revising my book uh, as a pre-doctor fellow i i i started to see and understood through conversations with political scientists and uh, particularly that this this sort of idea about how the nation is embodied or how um, people, how emotional expressions does matter to how the new, the nation is understood is not just occurring in Cameroon or in African countries. These ideas that I, you know, sort of grapple with or discuss in, in, in the book, they resonate beyond Cameroon and beyond Africa. Um, and I really think that they, 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 Cameroon then becomes a really fascinating case study to understand women's roles in, for example, separatist or secessionist projects around the world. And and I look to examples in Quebec with the the Quebec sovereignty movement and to the various independence movements that have taken place in Puerto Rico. If we look at Cameroon and then sort of, you know, look at women or female political elites in other areas of the world that are also grappling with how can we get greater autonomy or within, you know, uh, a hegemonic um, state. Uh, what unique roles do women play in that? Um, how, how do women access these roles in a very Different way than when they access political roles doing independence movements in Cameroon, in, in Cameroon, but also in Africa in general. What does that look like um, in the post-colonial context?
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, thinking of what it looks like in the book, you show really well that this national identity building that female West Camaritan political elites champion shows up in all kinds of areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of these areas it's, it's food and women's culinary skills. Uh, <laughs> another area is women's marriages. Um, and you'll mm-hmm. talk about it in a second. You talk about it. It's what I told you was my favorite chapter of the, <laughs> Of the book, uh, I thought it did have like the, the juiciest uh, title. This chapter the,
1: was, was it <laughs> the, the one about food, right?
0: about uh, no, not the one about food, oh. but the one about marriages. The oh. one that you titled "My Husband Stop Mating oh, Me oh, 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 oh. Beat <inaudible> yeah, Up yeah. This Girl." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, and you and you really you you develop that also that how uh, that's one of your quotes in the book how a respectable home functions as the anglophone nation writ small. So can you explain that to us a little bit? How did things such as cooking or women's marital and extramarital relations come to relate to Anglophone nationhood?
1: Yeah, um, that was actually one of um, my favorite parts of the research. And, and, and I have very much enjoyed uh, writing that chapter because um, particularly when I was con- originally conducting research for that, I, I had the experience of being in the archives and and then reading these historical narratives, leaving the archives and then seeing a continuation of a lot of the issues that were happening in the 1960s occurring in 2011 or or, in 2012 when I was uh, conducting my dissertation field research. And that was the case with issues about food and cooking. Um, I, I could easily connect the archive with my everyday life experience when I was in in Cameroon and the everyday life experiences of the women and men uh, around me. And it became really clear to me that in 1960s Cameroon, Cameroon cuisine becomes important in essentially cooking understandings of what the nation is. And um, if if we... First, understand that women are often seen to represent the nation, right? And they're often seen to authentically represent the nation. And one of the ways in which they do this is not only by reproducing, but also culturally reproducing the nation. It then becomes you know easier to understand why cooking it plays a really critical role, or is a critical ingredient in in understandings of what the nation is and what that looks like. So something that's like a so so a mundane activity that's done at home it, it is very much um, connected to uh, the nation. Is very much. Can very much be politicized, um, and so your kitchen then can become the nation rich large um, and, and, and what women cook and the ingredients that they use says much about um, their identity or the family 's identity, but also um, how the culture and the nation can be represented on the global level and it, it just um, it just was fascinating to me that. I, when I was conducting research for this and reading the sources, that, 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 that these female political leads are actually coming together to make essentially what's an Anglophone n- n- national cookbook. Um, and, and, and taking recipes not only from um, um, local areas, but also from French-speaking regions of Cameroon and from Nigeria. And and it was fascinating to me that this idea about what is the national cuisine is is really something that is um, put together (laughs) in the kitchen. It's not something, there's no inherent understanding of it uh, across time and and space. And so a lot of the food that we think of of, of that represent Cameroon, these are cuisines that were essentially um, selected during the 1960s. You had female journalists that asked, literally asked, what is our national cuisine here? Nigeria has theirs, Ethiopia has theirs. These these the these other parts of of the african continent have their national cuisine what is ours these other parts of the continent have their national costumes what is ours um and so they would literally pose these questions and people would submit uh, letters to the newspaper saying well i think it should be this right and then and i think it should be called this and other people would then respond and say, well i don't think it should be called this you know it should be called that and so it was just fascinating to see how Female political elites were, were were not were were leading the making of, of national cuisines, but also how everyday people, or really everyday literate people, were engaging in these conversations by writing into newspapers. But but so you have that going on, sort of you know how how can food rep- represent the nation? But but within sort of more um you guess know, you know domestic spaces or in gender or 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 with gender relations, food also plays a critical role. Um, and so it, it shapes these intimate everyday gender relations and, ex- and expectations about ideal womanhood. And, and when I was conducting research, people would say, oh, Francophone camera women don't know how to cook. They don't know how to take care of the house. And, and they would look at me in the eyes and they would say, they would say <coughs> this, right? And, and wow. I'd be like, uh, no, I, I would find myself defending myself, you know, I would, you know I, would, I would think I'm supposed to be doing research. Right. And I would say, no, I know how to cook this and that. And no, I can really sweep, but I can do this. Right. But, but there were, had. there were all these, um, stereotypes and it's, it, it became clear to me that throughout Cameroon, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, what I've seen, what I, what I read is that cooking is an important part of understandings of ideal womanhood in Cameroon. Um, and at this time, the ideal woman... Um, uh, cooked for her family, cooked for her husband, and if she was married specifically, she cooked her husband food for herself with her own hand, um, even if she, even if they could afford. Um, uh, help, even that they can afford, um, a cook. Uh, it, it, there was this emphasis that this, that, that the wife must cook her husband's food herself. And that if she did not do that, that she was not fulfilling fu- expected gender norms. And if you did not fulfill the expected gender norms, then, you know, why be surprised if your husband, um, then engages in extra affairs? Because then perhaps, you know, it's, it, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, these are I'm representing sort of the conversations in in my research, right? And so, for example, the, the some of the female journalists will say, well, perhaps it's the husband's mistress who knows how to cook really well, right? So perhaps you should step up your game, <laughs> and or perhaps you know. Um, cheese, making uh, the different dishes, uh, different types of dishes every single single day, you know, step up your game and, and also make different dishes every every single day. Um, but but it, so, so it really was a key role in, in sort of um, helping to forge ideas about gender relations or expected gender relations um, in this time period and in, in, per, Particularly um, in, the, in the time period for the um, book, but, but, but it was also about beyond that, it was also about, you know, um, it was also about how did the food you cook represent your status? And so you have these formally educated women that are also being told, you need to prove that just because you have a PhD. or just because you're a lawyer, you need to prove that you can also fulfill ideal womanhood, like traditional ones, that you can also cook you know, that that you also want to have kids, that that you do want to get married. However, you have a formal education, so you also need to show that you can cook um, British-style pudding, right? And so you would have these different conversations telling women when they should cook local traditional food, when they should cook Western-style food, and it depended on the circumstances. Yeah,
0: and I feel like a lot of these discussions still happen today, right? Uh, Um, in it's A hilarious. lot of context. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, some of the some of the really compelling sources that you use also throughout the book are newspaper columns written mm-hmm. by female journalists mm-hmm. who you call print griots. Mm-hmm. So, who are these print griots, and what was their impact?
1: Yeah, well, well, to begin with, uh, griots in West Africa, as we understand them, you know, there are. Professional storytellers, poets, and musicians, and they're also um, professional historians. And both men and women can be griots. But there's been research that shows that you know there's a there's been a general absence of discussions about female griots and scholarship on African oral tradition, and and and, and in conducting research and also presenting um, parts of my of my book at conferences, I, I realized that, you know, upon a, a closer look that specifically English speaking or, you know, Anglophone Cameroonian women journalists drew from local oral traditions, local storytelling approaches to tell stories about Cameroonian's past um, and to specifically tell stories about uh, Cameroonian women's history. African women's history, ideas about how uh, gender relations or gender norms were in the past um, and connecting that to the present day period um, and saying, hey, look, women were were queens um, before German colonialism and, and, and queens could do X, Y, Z, thus there can be a female parliamentarian today in, you know, 1960s Cameroon because of this long history of women having political power, um, and so I, I saw these women as essentially being uh, griots, so so print griots, and, and it allowed me to see how they they reimagined or they. Restitched Africa's past through these, you know, anecdotes and and stories that were being shared with them, with from family, friends, and community members, and just really embedding themselves within this broader West African culture in which you know, griots were professional storytellers about the past, and 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 looking at them as as print griot provided a unique lens to see how women writers, journalists, novelists, cookbook authors, for instance. Um really combined this these local ideas about oral traditions with their background of being formally educated in Western style Christian schools. Usually at this time period in the 1960s, it was happening during British rule, and how the combination of all these different and, and diverse influences about understanding the past, understanding gender norms came together what they collided and how they um, understood um, how they told stories about Cameroon's past and, 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 and how essentially this, this was a form of power. And, and, and the best example of how this was a form of power is that you would have um, male readers. Uh, it was often male readers who were writing into these newspapers in the 1960s because it was usually uh, men who would, were formally educated and doing British rules, of course, in 1960, they were the ones writing in. And they would say, oh, you know, I I wanna challenge you on this history about women being queens in the past. or I wanna challenge you about the fact that in in Cameroon's past, men and women actually divided their earnings um, equally or... or..." And so they were often challenging their interpretations about the past. And and that really, you know, was sort of this, it really highlighted for me this example about how history, (laughs) who gets to tell history, who gets to, um, how history is, is understood or is it's, 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 it's very powerful. And so you have these female journalists who, who are understanding Cameroon's past, specifically gender, Cameroon's, uh, gender history. And, and, and men feel threatened by this. Um, and, and it is essentially it's a good example of how, um, History and 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 storytelling can be um, a powerful um, uh,
0: tool. You just asked these these important questions. You know who gets to tell history and how is the past understood and how was it mitigated by these women writers? Um, so I, would, I want to come back to you then. Um, I wonder what what was your research process like, um, mm-hmm. specifically in the context that you conducted your research? And we, you know, there's there's an ongoing conflict in Cameroon. Also, given your positionality as a as a female historian, as a Francophone Cameroonian, tell us more about what that process of of, of researching and writing these histories um, what that was like.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really great question, um, and I, I I I wish these were conversations. I wish I was having more of these conversations when I was a graduate student and, and trying to choose my um, topic and, 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 and sort of sort of understanding the, the long term um, repercussions of, of, of what s- someone's research process is like. Um, when I first started out with, with the project, it, it was, to be really honest, it was really hard to convince um Mm, scholars in the U.S. that that Cameroonian history was indeed important um, and that indeed it was worth talking about. And, and, and I remember having a conversation at conferences and people saying is there a coup in Cameroon is there a civil war Mm -hmm. um has the president been taken down like you need to find a better way to basically sexify Cameroon right Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. like people do with South Africa with Nigeria with um, Ghana and so that was very much a stumbling block um starting out with to to be able to assure myself or, or to be um Whole study that yes, Cameroonian history is important, um, and that Cameroonian women's history in particular is important. Um, and so I, I really went to Cameroon with with that mindset, but also I had other experiences that that perhaps you would relate to that other um, scholars may not relate to uh, being someone who was born in Cameroon and most of my family being in Cameroon how my research process unraveled and unfolded um, perha- perhaps perhaps uh, looks looked really differently than my other counterparts at that time and so from for me there were um, multiple things at play in, in 2011 there was a presidential, elections and i put elections in air quotes going on and so here i was um you know a francophone cameroonian woman interviewing uh english-speaking cameroonians in large um um you know urban towns in in boya and and Limbe, and the elections were going on and people were very suspicious as to why did i want to talk about anglophone political history during the presidential elections Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i was very visible about the topic of of my research and then and what would happen was that they would know what the topic was and then i would start talking or start asking questions about food and clothes and for them there's a lot of people that i was interviewed would say well but but how how is this important to cameroon political like what is what is what is like what type of questions are you asking here and it was really interesting after a while um, after I had collected about twenty or twenty five oral interviews that and, and sort of looked at them across the board, I realized, oh my goodness they're all saying very similar things about um, food cuisine, and clothing, but the journey to 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 a- to access people to interview in itself was Originally difficult because of, of, of the francophone Cameroon background, but also to be really honest, um, to, because of of my age, um, as, as someone who was in graduate school um, I, at the time, I think I was um, 28, twenty eight, twenty twenty nine, and and looked very young for my for my age, and the people that I needed to interview were in their late fifties, sixties. Seventies and it was really hard for me to access them because they would look at me and they would say, first of all you're a doctoral student <laughs> second here is this this woman coming to write about Cameroonian political history where this is usually a topic that's um as one uh as one person said this is, this is a topic that men write you know male historians write this not um uh, not a female historian and and so it was it was difficult accessing people but this is where you know being born in Cameron and having family members really played a role because I I, I was really resistant in asking my family for help, um, and so eventually, when you know naturally at some point I broke down and uh, eventually asked my family for help, it was much easier to access people at that at that point. I had family. Fr- I had um uh, family, friends, uh, uh, women, uh, who were like aunt figures to me. I had my aunts who then got together and, 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 and they gave me access to their different women's organizations and they would formally introduce me and they would say, this is my niece and she's going to be a professor and she wants to focus on cameron women's history. And they would say how important it was. I mean, so they would, they would, there was sort of, um, essentially they would pave the road for me. Right. And so then I would have these, um, uh, these large group interviews or these one-on-one interviews. And, and so that, that was my experience, um, or my research process. And it was, it it was, um, one in which I really had to be studied because it was, um, when I would have family that would, you know, they would say, but, "But why are you focusing on anglophone Cameroonian history? You're from the, you know, you're from the the, the French speaking uh, Grassfield region. You need to be writing art on our history. Like <laughs> why, why, what? Like what are you doing?" Um, and so it was a really, uh, when I look back on it, the the, the research process was uh, a distinct one for someone um, who who was born in one in one area, but but you know, living abroad. For um, for the majority of of their lives, and it really also gave me the space to understand a lot of stereotypes about Anglophone and Cameroonian history about or Anglophone in Cameroonian people that I grew up with. Uh, conducting uh, oral history in in, in in the large towns in English-speaking Cameroon was also a good personal experience for me. It really allowed me to better understand Cameroonian culture and identity. And to to be really blunt and frank, it allowed me to understand um, the stereotypes about Anglophone and Francophone Cameroonian people that I grew up hearing um and also stereotypes about other africans in cameroon such as nigerians and and so in it better it it, it 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 gave me that historical context to um better arm myself or to understand the political landscape of Cameroon today and to understand how many of these issues are are based on stereotypes, are based on on creations about national and cultural identity. I'm not saying that they're not important, but I think it is also important to understand how these identities are developed and what the history of that is. And ultimately, you know, this might not be a, a popular comment. Ultimately, I, I, I felt that Cameroonian women f- throughout the country are more alike than dissimilar. Um, and so that's what I walked away with, um, and, on in, in, in understanding these ideas about how we compose ourselves in public and, and what, and, and what we cook, um, that these are all themes I see throughout the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, yeah, that's, that's so important that those are some of the conclusions that you reached, and as you say, like positionality is very important. Perhaps like your proximity to what you were studying, but also slight distance because you're not specifically from the from that part of Cameroon. Yeah. that that really brings in another perspective. Um, look, we're, we're taking up a lot of, the, of your time. Um, so to wrap up the interview, I guess the traditional question that I ask all the guests is, "What are you working on now? What projects, big or small?" Um, are taking your time at the moment.
1: My second book project, Transnational Histories, Nodes of of Encounter and Belonging in Africa, is very different from the first project and has been a very interesting journey. Uh, What I've been doing is examining the conversion of thousands of Africans to the Baha'i faith in the 1950s and 1960s to essentially illuminate, um, to highlight these new transnational histories. And I've been drawing on oral histories of, of, of the very first uh, of Baha'i converts in Africa, as well as our archival research um, to show uh, thus far that through Baha'ism, which is a religion with roots in Iran, that teaches the unity and equality of all religions and people, including gender and racial equality, that these converts, including Cameroonians and Ugandans and Ghanians, forged new spaces of belonging through becoming Baha'i. They earned elevated positions in the Baha'i administrative system, um, PhDs at major universities on the continent, as well as Europe and and the United States, married into families abroad and built these transnational businesses. And, and, and really in tracing the movements of peoples and cultures and ideas across these diverse spaces, um, one of the uh, goals and, or, or aims I have for this project is really to pay close attention to transnational mobility on the macro and micro levels. And the social mobility and effective networks that African Baha'is made included Black American uh, Bahá'í converts, and really, facil- it really facilitated this global, uh, pan-African intellectual activism and distinct Black cosmopolitan identities that were grounded in both local and global contexts. Essentially, for the second book project, I look at how people or Africans who became Bahá'í um, travel across the continent to spread the faith, and I look at the diverse encounters and interactions they have with other Africans, but equally important with Black Americans, um, specifically Black American women who are also um, uh, traversing the African continent at the same time and and, and equally making all these connections with African behinds. I mean, it's a really fascinating story and, and and it's taken me on all sorts of rabbit holes in and journeys that I didn't think I would um, be heading towards. It's been a really fun project.
0: Yeah, it, it sounds really fun and really fascinating. And um, I hope, well, first I hope you'll be back on the podcast to, you know, <laughs>
1: talk to us about the project. When
0: it's <laughs> but also I imagine it's going to be a very long project that's going to take you to a lot of places. So, you know, um, as we get small results from that also, um, I'm really excited to see what, you, what you'll come up with with that. Sounds really cool. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this, this will conclude our, our discussion. So, to remind our listeners, this was Dr. Jacqueline Betel-Shukta who was presenting her new book, Gender, Separatist Politics, and Embodied Nationalism in Cameroon, that was published in 2019 with Michigan University Press. Um, as we were talking, Jack, you mentioned, uh, HNET, so I want to remember, remind everyone, all the listeners, that this interview will be shared On all the networks, including the HNet, social media, Twitter, um, and wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. So make sure to give this a listen. You, it was, it was really great. You really give us like a great overview of women's role in this separatist politics that, you know, a lot of us, including myself growing up on the continent, I was just telling you before the interview, it's, it's only very recently that I started getting a glimpse of this complex history of Cameroon. And mm-hmm. even within that, you know, we don't hear about women very often. So, like, you really did a great job just showing us that. And there's a lot that we didn't discuss in in the podcast. You know, you you show how, how these um, ideas of nationhood emerge in, you know, beauty pages and mm-hmm. ideas about trousers, who should be wearing trousers and who should not, mm-hmm. uh, and really a lot of other areas. So um, it was really a, a great book to read. And I hope that everybody that listens to the interview will also afterwards just pick up the book and read it because there's really a lot that can that can be learned from it. Um, and thank you again for for giving us some of your time today and for coming on the show. It was really great to have you.
1: Thank you, Medina for having me.